You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hi, good afternoon. Um, we'll go ahead and start. I think some others will will be joining us later, but it's it's my pleasure to welcome you uh, here this afternoon. My name is George Perkovich. I'm a vice president for studies uh, here at the Carnegie Endowment, and I've um, worked on it various at various times and in various ways on on India uh, for a couple of decades now, so it's a pleasure uh, to be presiding over this session, which half of whose focus, at least, uh, is is India. And uh, my job is mainly just to, to moderate what is going to be a, a presentation uh, by Bernd von Munchau-Pohl, who is the author of the report uh, behind you, and, and Bernd is... Uh, here with us at Carnegie uh, this year. He's a career German diplomat. You have the, the bios here. Um, but he's been working in the U.S. for the last number of years, but before that was uh, posted in, in India, and so has an abiding interest uh, in India. And I think you'll agree when you read the, the report that it's, uh, that it's actually um, framed in a really interesting uh, way, I thought, where you know people commonly think of India as an aspiring uh, great power and and don't recognize that in many ways the EU as a, as a unit is also aspiring uh, in a similar way as as India is and so he, he begins with that and he'll describe uh, the paper more but I think it really is a, a fascinating kind of inquiry into both uh, India's aspirations and policies and the limitations on them, as well as the EU's and how those two things uh, interact. So I was uh, very, very intrigued by the paper uh, as I was reading it and hope that you all will take the time uh, to read it as well. Bernd will begin um, by kind of giving a, a, a small sketch of the paper. And then uh, we're, we're honored to have with us two uh, particularly accomplished and well-informed um, diplomats from India and the European Union uh, to comment. Uh, the first will be Ambassador Rajendra uh, Abhyankar, who is now the chairman of the Kunzru uh, Center for Defense Studies and Research in Pune, India. Um, he has had a, a, an exceptionally distinguished uh, diplomatic career. He's been the ambassador in uh, more places or represented India to more countries uh, than I think most ambassadors I've ever uh, encountered. And, and you uh, don't get to do that without being extremely um, talented. Uh, and amongst those stints was he was India's ambassador in Brussels, so covering the EU, uh, Belgium, and Luxembourg, which gives him a special insights uh, for commenting on the paper that, that Byrne has written. Uh, and then uh, Ambassador uh, Abiancar will be followed by uh, Francois Rivasseau, who was an old friend or a friend of long standing uh, of mine, not that he's old. Um, and he's the deputy head of the European Union delegation to the United States. Uh, and he came to that position from being the DCM of the French uh, embassy here in Washington. So has gotten to know Washington better than uh, most of us uh, who live here and is an extremely able uh, diplomat. And so we'll welcome his comments on the paper as well from an, from an EU uh, perspective. And then we'll open it up for a, for a discussion. 
So let me get out of the way and ask Bernd to begin. Thank you, George. Having come here after spending some years of my professional life in Delhi, uh, I cannot help or couldn't help but notice that if it comes to India, the discussion here in this town focus or narrows mostly down to a triangle. And this triangle has on one side India and the other side the US and China, maybe a little FPAC on the side. The other, the other colored spaces on the globe so we don't really seem to figure so much in this, in this discussion here. For me as a European, I'm of course more interested in the relationship between the old continent and the even older subcontinent, that is India. What, is, what are the foundations of this relationship? What are its dynamics? What are its prospects? And above all, where might it figure in the larger picture? Hence the title of this paper which you have in front of you, India and Europe in a multipolar world. As George mentioned or alluded to, the idea of India as a rising power has gained traction and was greatly popularized by the uh, Goldman Sachs BRICS report some, I believe, 12 years ago now. If there's any discussion, it's only whether India is now fully or almost fully emerged or whether it's still emerging. This notion is prevalent as elsewhere in the world, in India, in uh, government cycles, in uh, corporate headquarters, or and among think tank pundits. But not only there, in, um, I saw it in um, Pew Global Attitudes poll was taken in 2010, which pointed out that almost nine of 10 Indians believe that their country is either already a great, a leading world power, or would be one soon. 38% believe that it's gotten already there. I think the case of that is, is actually quite easily made. India is one of the world's ancient great civilization with the 1.2 billion people and counting. It will eclipse China as the world's most populous countries, country before the mid of the century. And on top of it, it's a nuclear power. The sheer size of its economy destines it for the top league. If you look at history, if you look at the rise of other great powers, Great Britain, the US, China, I think the deduction looks simple. Great economic power begets great political power. But is that really a foregone conclusion in the case of India? The country does face some daunting challenges on this trajectory. For all its millionaires and billionaires and new urban middle class, the greater part of its population or a great part of its population is still mired in abject poverty. If you look at the uh, social economic indicator from the World Bank, it figures somewhere below sub-Saharan Africa. According to some recently released uh, Indian government figures, 60% of its rural population, and that is about something in between two-thirds or three-quarters of the total, live on less than 35 rupees per day. That's the equivalent of 68 cents US. Yes, there has been astonishing growth growth Europe can only dream of in the last few years. But has this growth really been inclusive? There's a, there's a wide and growing divide between rich and poor, between cities and villages, and between different regions, those who do well and those who don't do not so well. This growing divide feels political dissatisfaction is one of the roots that India cannot rid itself of its uh, 
problem of the Nexalite insurrection, which have rendered parts of its eastern and southeastern state, states no-go territory for the authorities. And um, there's also there's a growing, there's growing political fragmentation at the center. Um, if you look at uh, what at the political process in, in New Delhi over the last year or year and a half, you get a feeling of increasing um, logjam or even political paralysis, which that actually has even spilled over into foreign policy. The EU, for its part, has seen its good deal of political paralysis of its own in the last months, um, connected to the to the euro crisis. Um, you get the impression that Europe is in economic decline, unable to fix and uh, to address its uh, more deep-rooted structural problems, and is drifting apart instead of pulling together. But um, I think one shouldn't get uh, sort of carried away by these doom and gloom scenarios. There are, you also have to look at some very basic figures. If you take the EU 27 as a whole, uh, they, the EU still tops the world's, the, the, uh, the IMF's GDP ranking. And the EU remains the world's largest trader. So the question for me was, why not apply the same logic to the EU? Economic power begets political power. Or what would stand in the way that this is not happening in the case of the EU? Politically, the enlargement process continues. Where the EU is able to pull its, uh, at, um, to overcome its internal differences and speak with one voice, like, for example, in the Durham climate talks, it can bring its full weight to the table. But of course, then there are the obstacles. Weak growth, even recession, bad demographics, growing regional imbalances, imbalances just as in India. And the question or overall, is the EU really political, ready to take the next step? It goes for its population. If you look at the uh, French and Dutch referendum against the Constitution Project three years ago, and it goes for the national governments and national parliaments. Yes, Europe points out to the step forwards made with the Lisbon Treaty, but its much acclaimed co common foreign security policy is not still quite able to deliver on the big ticket items. To name just but one, uh, a common position on UN security reform, council reform. One reason why um, I was also personally intrigued about um, comparing the EU and India was that they actually do share, even though they're completely, politically completely different beasts, uh, share some very inter interesting similarities. They're both multicultural, multilingual, multireligious democracies, organized in some sort of quasi-federal structures. They have 27 respective 28 states with 23 official languages. And I believe it's not a coincidence that both chosen the same official motto, unity in diversity. We have to remember they're also very relatively young political structures, still evolving. And evolving with the structure is their political identity. Um, so the question for me was really, where might they both figure 
in the new global peer constellation that is emerging? What kind of power are they going to be? What role do they want to play? And what kind of relationship are they going to have with each other? Historically, the relationship is pretty old, covers about 450 years of colonialism and with the British Raj leaving the most lasting imprint with all, in all its negative and positive aspects. For many decades, the, decades, the uh, relationship between Europe and India was dominated by trade and aid. Europe was and remains India's largest trading partner and its biggest donor. With India's stature emerging on the, on the global scene, they both had their first of, its, of their then annual summits in 2000. In 2004, they promulgated a strategic partnership and they followed this up with a comprehensive document called the Joint Action Plan to map out this, what this strategic partnership should entail. There was a certain good deal of optimism and great expectations back in 2005, I'm sure. Ambassador Abiyankar will underline that. And if you look back today, and you look forward to today, one has to say that a lot of that hasn't really materialized. There were lots of declarations of good political intent, uh, many different formats of political dialogue. An intricate partnership architecture was put into place, but there was fairly little hard political substance and, and action. On balance, it is fair to say that the relationship has underperformed. One Indian commentator likened it to a loveless arranged marriage. The differences in this marriage, arranged or not, um, actually begin with a different understanding of the term, of the very term strategic partnership. For the Indian side, the, this term has to be read in the context of the concept of strategic autonomy, which has been sort of the guiding principle of Indian foreign policies back from the days of non-alignment. For the EU side, strategic partnership is a building block in the idea of what the EU calls effective multilateralism, which is the mantra of their security strategy, the idea that the global challenges of today and tomorrow require can only be met um, with multilateral <coughs> coordinated action. For that, the EU believes it needs strategic partners, preferred like-minded strategic partners. These different approaches have hampered the implementation of the Joint Action Plan whether it was the idea of um, cooperating in conflict prevention or conflict resolution, in the advancement of democracy or human rights, or how to tackle climate change. Both sides had to realize that shared values do not necessarily make converging interests or shared priorities. In fact, both sides remain pretty much focused on their own immediate environment. And in that immediate environment of India, for example, Europe does not really, is not really much present if, uh, aside from their 
um, part of, of, the, of, of, of the NATO force in Afghanistan. With that in mind, I think there's a tendency in, in, uh, in India to generally dismiss the European Union as a serious political player, like the US. This uh, is only one, uh, one aspect of sort of the larger attitude problem, I think, that both sides have with each other. I think it's fair to say that there is a certain lack of interest uh, of uh, understanding and up, of appreciation for each other on, on both sides. Um, if uh, you uh, ask uh, European and Indian officials off the record about their opinions and impression of the other side, what you get to hear is not always altogether very flattering. Another shortcoming in the relationship, another detractor, is uh, that it so far generally lacks bottom-up dynamics. Unlike, for example, the US-India relationship, where you have a very a strong and growing, well-to-do, well-organized, and politically quite powerful lobby in, uh, in, among the Indian diaspora. There is no such thing on the European side to match that. Who would be a, an important stakeholder. For me, the obvious question was if the uh, relationship has underperformed so far, and what, how could it live, what, could, what needs to happen for it to live up to its uh, full potential? What we, would be the way forward? And there are for me, there are really three main points. First of all, both sides need to realize that the economics remain for the foreseeable future the backbone of their relationship. That will need to grow first. And, and in order for that to happen, both sides really need to conclude the free trade, free trade agreement, which has been under negotiation now for some five years. Um, there are still some, ob some obstacles in the agreement matter itself, and the surrounding political framework conditions have, have not become any easier on both sides either. Both sides need to try harder to push the matter forward. It would not only be a booster for the economic relationship, it could be a real game changer for the partnership as a whole. Secondly, the partnership really needs some joint action, quote unquote, now. Um, as to a partnership that uh, consists mainly of, polit of political dialogue and nothing else can hardly be called strategic. Both sides need to sit to get down together, define, define a few shared priorities and actionable items, such as, for example, joint anti-piracy, operations in the Indian Ocean, or joint measures against cyber terrorism. Both such things were discussed in the last summit in New Delhi, but something concrete really needs to happen now to show the greater potential of the relationship. Thirdly, the relationship does need more stakeholders. 
uh, needs and renewed interest involvement and involvement from business leader, but it also needs some sort of regular contacts and regular dialogues between lawmakers, between civil society and NGOs. That was attempted but never came to, fru to fruition. Uh, and that could help the whole partnership give a better grounding in society on both sides. Without any tangible progress in, in these three areas, the relationship is, I believe, at risk of stagnation and political marginalization in the longer run. In closing, I would like to point out that I do believe that Europe and India have a shared interest in keeping this world a multipolar one. It's important to bear in mind that they have no, that their geographical spheres of interest do not overlap, that they really don't have any direct conflict in that sense. But they both have two unique historic experiences which would make them quite suitable partner as co-managers of the global order. The problem is they're both not quite there yet, neither in their partnership nor in their individual role on the world stage. The EU, for its part, needs to overcome its institutional capability gap to play that role. And I believe India must first and foremost muster sufficient political will to live up to the demands of this role. Thanks. Thank, thank you, Bernd. Um, so Ambassador Apyankar, uh, I, I have to say, um, has flown from Mumbai and landed around 11 o'clock this morning. And so for any of you who've done that trip and then gone to try to give a talk afterwards, uh, you have some idea what a heroic effort uh, this is. And so we congratulate you and thank you and applaud you. And we look forward very much to your remarks, please. Thank you very much. I actually was going to say the same thing that if you, <laughs> if you find me incoherent, then you'll know why that is so. Um, I, I'm very happy that you've given me this opportunity to speak on this subject because, uh, you know, I was posted to Brussels twice, once as a young diplomat in 1972 and then as ambassador in 2004. In 1972, we were really at, I, I mean, in a major problem because the United Kingdom uh, had decided to accede to the EEC, as it was then called, and as a result, out went the imperial preferences, which actually governed almost 60% or 70% of our trade, of our exports. And all of a sudden, we were left bereft of this huge... Uh, sort of crutch that we had, I should say. And um, we were, at that time, uh, trying to see what kind of a relationship we could have with the EEC. So initially, we looked at different models, and the model that uh, we thought we could uh, try to see whether it worked was that of an association agreement of the kind that France had been able to get for all the former French colonies. Unfortunately, 
when we started making that, uh, you know, the day marshes and the discussions, we were told in no uncertain terms that, oh, India is a non-associable. Uh, and so was everyone else in the Indian subcontinent. Now, it felt to us, for those of you who've been to India and who know a little bit about our society, it felt like we were Dalits of the international world. <laughs> Non-associable, you don't want to associate. That was 1972. And it was quite a job to get uh, the thing started through a commercial cooperation agreement between India and EU in 1973. Partly also thanks to the fact that under the UNCTAD of 1968, uh, the generalized system of preferences had come in and we were able to use that. That 40 years, I mean almost 40 years later in 2004 when I was ambassador in Brussels, the EU actually made, took the initiative to propose that it should become, India and the EU should become strategic partners. So that was the whole span. So in that sense, I'm very happy that you've given me this opportunity to speak about a matter in which I've been installed there at the creation, more or less. And um, I should say that Burns' paper is outstanding for the simple reason that it has, this is the first paper that I've seen which gives, which firstly tells it as it is, and secondly, it gives insights into the thinking on the European Union side, which doesn't always come out in such stark relief as it does in your paper. For example, I mean, I was quite surprised, especially on the business of counterterrorism cooperation, because I had to really break a lot of heads in 2004 to at least see whether we could have any kind of a cooperation on counterterrorism between India and the EU. Uh, and it was quite a job. And now, reading his paper, I find that it's not going to go any further because uh, of you'll have to read the paper, so let me, <laughs> let me leave the suspense to you. And uh, similarly, I mean, the issue of the, fa uh, the point that a lot of the work that has been done in the, in between India and the EU owes a lot to the development cooperation budget that the European Union has, which is going to lapse next year. So then, without the resources, is there enough ballast in the whole thing to move this forward or is it just going to wither away? So, I mean, there are many such points and uh, the important conclusion which he didn't mention uh, is that he thinks that uh, there should be a stark and a frank review of this relationship uh, to see what can be done. Perhaps his paper can be the basis for it and perhaps there could be somebody from the Indian side who could do it so that something really important comes out in terms of outcomes. Because the whole problem here is that the entire relationship, especially after the strategic partnership, is all about process. There are a whole lot of dialogues, a plethora of dialogues, but not much on, in terms of outcome. Now, I should say here, that that also is a very important aspect of uh, a relationship between any two entities. For example, take the India-US relationship. Till 2000, when President Clinton came to India before that, we had very little uh, bilateral forums, very few. To act, we used to be always in a problem as to whom, with whom do we discuss and what forum do we use to discuss various issues. 
Now we have a huge institutional architecture. So I'm not minimizing the process, but I'm uh, only highlighting that when the process becomes an end, as in fact comes out quite clearly from his paper, then there is some problem. I mean, then, then we have to look at why this happens. So uh, before getting into some more nitty gritty, let me say that, of course, uh, common perception is that the EU is in decline and all that kind of thing, possibly. It's also aging, which is true. Uh, but seen from an Indian perspective, what is important as far as we are concerned about the EU is that this is one group of countries where long-standing, long-held enmities have finally been put to rest. I'm talking of France and Germany, <coughs> which were responsible for all the wars of the last century. And it's not going to happen again. That for us is important, not that India-Pakistan rivalry is uh, of that character, but I mean, if that can be done, why can't we do something with India and Pakistan? I mean, that's just a thought. The second is that this is, again, a very um, unique case where sovereign nations have surrendered their sovereignty or to large, lesser or greater degree to a more supranational entity. Now, um, I saw a report that depending on which member state it is, uh, the, uh, the decisions made in Brussels which affect the common European in the street, it varies from between 70% to 30%. Depend, I mean, so there are some countries which actually have surrendered almost 70% of their sovereignty and are quite happy to uh, have the EU decide. Most of them are small countries. Most of them are those who came in later because that has given them a sense of identity. On the other hand, the big guys are not interested in. But anyway, the point is that there is a conscious surrender of sovereignty because, of course, uh, surrendering sovereignty is a much more wider concept. And you can say that if you take a World Bank loan, you have also surrendered sovereignty. So one can go on. But basically, here's a conscious surrender of sovereignty, which is, again, something that's quite unique, and that's quite unique for India. Uh, when the uh, president of the EU was in India recently for the summit which was held last month, he said that another thing that EU should be given credit for is for having defeated communism. Yes, I suppose that some part of the credit could be given for that. Uh, the other thing is economically, as he said, that uh, the EU accounts for 7% of the world's population but 20% of its income. The figure for the U.S. is 19%, for China is 14%, and for India is 6%. So let's not minimize the importance of the EU as a bloc. Now, having said this, the four points on which I wanted to make some comments. The first is the comparison between India-EU and India-US, which is one point that you have which is quite interesting to make. I suppose your being here at the Carnegie Endowment may have been responsible for it. The second is the question of supplemental diplomacy, because I see that you used my word, and I wanted to explain exactly what it is, or what I mean by it, anyway. The third is on this whole business of strategic partnerships. And lastly, because you have raised it, some comments on how Indian foreign policy is made today. I mean, in the sense, because you have said that what does India actually want to do in the future? What does it think it can do? 
and how does it want to do it? So on the India-EU and the India-US comparison, of course, you very correctly said that the attraction in India, as far as the India-US relationship is concerned, is possibly the hard power that the US has, plus the fact that there is a capacity to deliver quickly. I suppose the India-US nuclear deal can be taken as one of these things. But a third point here that I'd make is that in uh, the India-US relationship, there isn't as much of a conscious attempt to change Indian thinking as it is in the India-EU relationship. Because the uh, everything with the EU starts with how they want to see India, and but the India doesn't, may not want to be that. So that, I think that is also important. And I uh, think I would say also that uh, the role of the Indian diaspora, of course, in the US now is very, very important. It actually developed when I used to be Consul General here, and it's now uh, certainly a factor, and not just in India-US relationship, it's a factor in the political life in this country. In uh, the EU, on the other hand, I think we have more than 50% of the Indian diaspora in the EU is in UK and the rest of it is in continental Europe. So, and although there are organizations, but they are not politically active. Like here, there are politically uh, political action committees. For example, I think the figures may still be the same, that if you take the hotel sector in the US by rooms, then the Indian American Hotel Owners Association owns 59% of those rooms. If you take doctors, one out of every six doctors in the U.S. is an Indian, if, and so on. I mean, I can, so they have massive power in terms of the electoral system in the U.S. That's not there in the EU. So that's some points on, some sort of comments on the India-EU and the India-U.S. thing. Secondly, on supplemental diplomacy, basically the thing is that we have very close, very vibrant relationship with all the big members of the EU. And they are not going anywhere. They are going to only become more stronger and so on. So once the EU started acting politically in India, which was basically in the last decade after the first political summit, summit of 2000, it had to decide how does it want to insert itself into the foreign policy part of the relationship. So it has actually willy-nilly taken what one could call the softer dimensions of foreign policy, like emphasizing things like humanitarian law, human rights, death penalty, and a whole lot of these issues. These are issues which the, certainly the big countries don't want to raise with us, because they know that it raises our, takes our, you know, puts our back up, it is seen as intrusive, and it is a needless negative factor in the relationship. But on the other hand, the EU taking it up gives, gives them the chance to also have those uh, issues raised with us. In that sense, it becomes a supplemental diplomacy. It's not mainline diplomacy, because that the member states are doing. So this is where the whole thing sort of is resting at this time. There aren't, uh, I mean, the mainline issues are most of the time getting dealt with uh, through the member states, and that also is largely due to what Bernd has mentioned in his paper about the good European word of competencies, 
what is the competency of the EU as against the <coughs> each member states? And there are many very sensitive areas where the states have not yet ceded complete autonomy to the European Union. So uh, that is why most of the time the EU gets seen as a trade bloc, which it is not. It, I mean, which it is, of course, but what I mean is which it has certainly increased its image uh, in the political area, uh, but uh, it's not getting that kind of traction. Uh, in the trade itself, of course, we have old problems dating back from a long time. So then it's always the same thing that goes on, which we see happening during the Doha round and so on. So that's just to explain what this supplemental diplomacy is all about. Then on strategic partnership. Now this is a word which has got, is greatly bandied about. Uh, and uh, we, of course, have strategic partnerships with all the major powers and some not so major. Uh, but the thing is that what exactly does one mean by it? Because different countries mean different things by it at different times. So it looks more like a moving target. You do say it when you want to do something. But therefore, it looks pretty inconsistent. If you actually, if any entity of India or the EU wants to have a strategic partnership, the first thing is that regardless of who you have a strategic partnership, at least in theory, you should have some minimum criteria that the relationship should, should uh, you know, meet. Uh, these may be aspirational criteria, more like, you know, if you have read Marcus Aurelius's meditations, he talks of certain criteria that you should have in your life, not because you're necessarily going to achieve them, but they are, as he says, uh, like uh, water to a man walking in a desert to just, you know, wash your face and get fresh again to know what your goal is. <clears throat> now. So what, and I have had, uh, when I was secretary in the ministry, some problems with this thing, especially with Australia. I'm not going to tell you what the problem was, but. Uh, so I thought uh, at least one should try to see that surely there must be some minimum criteria which any strategic partnership of any country should try to meet. First, of course, it assumes or it presupposes a relationship which is uh, higher than the normal diplomatic intercourse that takes place between any two entities. Otherwise, why are you calling it strategic partnership? So how is it different? So minimum thing. Firstly, it is based on sovereign equality that the two entities not just say that it is so, but treat each other as sovereign equals. Second is that any cooperation in international forums between the two entities, even on issues on which they differ, is something they will consult with. Third is, of course, that what you decide jointly, bilaterally, would also be what you would say multilaterally. Third is, of course, any such strategic partnership should be immune from the vicissitudes of the ups and downs in your relationship with a third entity. Uh, example, of course, is the, uh, that is the problems we had when we had uh, our nuclear tests in 1998 when a number of our strategic partners decided to abandon us. So we said, what's the use? I mean, what is so strategic about it if you're going to act like that? So then, of course, there's a common, uh, there should be a common adherence to international conventions. I mean, these are just some aspirational ideas. So 
basically the thing is how does india's strategic partnership compare with the eu's strategic partnership with other countries especially with the us because the us is a strategic partner canada japan the thing is that in 2004 when the eu suggested that <clears throat> there should be a strategic partnership between india and the eu it was based on our potential that this is what it may become and therefore it's good a good time to do it whereas in the case of the united states or and eu or with japan and the eu it's based on ground realities there was a fact uh, you know there was an ongoing relationship just got uh, put in a straight jacket of strategic partnership and that's what really points to the fact that you need outcomes if you want this thing to move forward um i think your president recently said that we have strategic partners but we need a strategy <laughs> that's true <laughs> but i have seen new ideas about what a strategic what kind of strategic partners the eu should have in which although it's not been done but there is one idea that why not also make those countries which for whatever reason do not meet all the criteria for a full membership you make them call them strategic partners or others like swing states regional swing states for example pakistan or israel why don't you have strategic partnership so i mean i think it's all in the churning but i thought i should just mention that one that it, this is not aimed at the eu but it's aimed at any country that one has to at least have some commonality of certain criteria across your strategic partnerships otherwise it makes no sense otherwise it just becomes opportunistic or uh, ad hoc um the last point is uh, provoked by um, the sentence that burn has in his paper that what kind of a power does india want to be and what role does it see for itself now that's really the 64 million dollar question i don't think anybody can really answer it uh, we have a task force on uh, national security whose report at least whose first report should be due soon maybe it will give us some ideas that let me therefore make few comments on my understanding how indian foreign policy is made or unmade although it's not exactly within the four corners of this paper but i think he has raised certain things now basically india has always stri uh, strived to find the middle ground in uh, on any policy issue right from the time we became independent the two and that was because of certain influences and factors that bear on this all this does not come out <coughs> in the open but nevertheless it does happen at independence the two most important questions that uh, the country and uh, that our government then faced one was the the state of israel that state of israel came into being in 1948 and we became independent in 1947 and the second was the indian membership of the united nations special commission on palestine of 1948 where india actually gave a dissenting note the only country to give a dissenting note against the partition of the state for the simple reason we had just come out of our own partition and we didn't want someone else to suffer the same trauma but uh, on israel there was the other issue that uh, as you know as you may know at the time of our independence there were two competing ideologies that were in play one was of course the congress and the leaders of the congress and the movement which got us independence who were absolutely clear 
that India would be a democratic republic, India would be a secular republic. Secular in the sense that there will be no uh, privileged position for the majority community, that is the Hindus who were 80%, and that there will be no state assistance to any religion whatsoever. And that still remains. There was the Hindu Mahasabha, which was, uh, on the other hand, very keen that it should be a democracy, but it should be basically what one can call a majoritarian democracy, where the majority community would clearly have a different class of citizenship, not that it would be written like that, but it would be like, for example, in Israel or in Sri Lanka, where the Sinhalese and the non-Jewish, of course, have uh, different rights. So um, in this contestation, having decided not to have a majoritarian Hindu state, there was no way that the government of India could actually accept a majoritarian Jewish state of Israel. So what did we do? We found a middle ground and what we did was we said we will recognize the state of Israel but we will not have any diplomatic relations with that uh, state. And then we said because we have Jews in two of our states who wanted to emigrate to Israel, we would non-reciprocally allow consular facilities in Bombay in order to uh, facilitate immigration. And that position remained from 1948 to 1992. So, just uh, this is just an example. I think the same thing happened with our nuclear. Uh, Thing. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, generally what, I mean, I see that the idea of strategic autonomy which you mentioned is, I frankly don't know what, uh, what one can understand by it, but basically what I can try to say is that on issues which have a direct impact domestically, we are conservative. On issues which have something to do with the international order, we are very progressive. I mean, that's really where we stand. The, am I running out of time or can I? Yeah, you should. We'd be good to wrap up because we'll have a discussion. Okay, all right. I was just going to say that the watersheds which have led to this present state of affairs, 1989, when the Congress lost its majority in the state and the center, 1991 when we went in for economic liberalization and 1998 when we had our nuclear test. That's what made us think that we have to come down from the high moral ground and start looking at things more pragmatically. The problem with us is that we have an ingrained cognitive disability about, about foreign policy, about breaking the mold, so to say. And this is because of a number of reasons which somebody wants, I'm happy to. But basically, so today, Indian foreign policy is getting made in a very incremental way. And uh, the good thing is that finally, foreign policy issues have come out on the streets. A lot of issues, starting actually with the war in Iraq, uh, are getting political parties activated and things are getting politicized, as, for example, the India-EU free trade agreement. So the last point is that while... Uh, um, conceding sovereignty may sit very well on the EU, but India is nowhere near agreeing to consciously surrender its sovereignty or change the old Westphalian concept of sovereignty. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, Ambassador. Um, there was a lot there to pick up on, which I, I'm sure we will in a discussion. Um, Ambassador Rivasil. Thank you. And... Uh, 
allow me to thank both Bernd, Carnegie, and the Ambassador for these very enlightening speeches. Um, when I read the book, the work of Bernd, I think uh, what strikes me is that uh, it was not so much long de bois. What characterizes EU-India relationship is that it's extremely difficult to go out of uh, langue de bois. Do you understand langue de bois? Uh, uh, official language, uh, official way of presenting things, uh, um, being uh, not always presenting things rosy, but uh, realistically what they are. And uh, you have made a serious attempt, even if occasionally on one sentence or one concept, I, I, I it appeared that I, I happen to disagree, but 99% uh, of what you write is interesting, and as you said, Ambassador, it's not so often that uh, we see some work which is able to go farther than the official presentation and to go to, to, to what is uh, the substance of a, a relation. If, we, if I wanted to be Langue de Bois, I would uh, tell you <laughs> that the EU-India strategic partnership holds is vast and uh, extremely promising. We are both diverse, democratic, consensus-based policies. We even share a motto, you have not said that, unity in diversity is a common motto to EU and to India. We even shared the same number of official languages, 23. <laughs> well, now we, should, uh, we are going to be 24, uh, now that Croatia is uh, incorporating, because the difference, maybe one important difference between India and Europe is that Europe is still growing. While India is, uh, uh, I will not enter into a very difficult sub-continent uh, question, but uh, it, it has not a, a vocation to, to, to expand uh, further than possibly uh, the, the former uh, borders uh, of uh, um, uh, Indian colonies, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> I would make a reservation for the Pakistani case, which is very special and uh, it's a family affair. I will not enter into it. Uh, <laughs> We should not, it's really your, your, your issues. But India is a key player, has a major role to play in finding solutions to global challenges, offer tremendous economy import, economic opportunities. We have shared values on many issues, but uh, it is probably by far the most uh, deceptioning strategic partnership that we have in the world. Uh, and this is reciprocal. It's deceptioning for India, it's deceptioning for EU. And this is the reality. Uh, we are uh, not managing expectations. People place a lot of expectations in this strategic partnership, which are a bit unrealistic. And I shall uh, come back to it. But before explaining why uh, we should not be, uh, we should have to manage expectation and not to be unrealistic, I would just uh, briefly stress what are the strong points of this partnership. Strong points are security and regional stability, and. Uh, we are seeking to develop security cooperation, at least seen from the EU, we, we would like to work more in security and uh, regional stability. We have a great success, which is Somalia, Atalanta. We hope to have, uh, uh, we have obviously a great interest in the joint interest in Afghanistan. I think our strategic interest could uh, be uh, convergent there in stabilizing Afghanistan uh, under a form which would not be too far from its present situation. The withdrawal of European and, EU and Americans uh, from now, from 2012 till 2014, is obviously uh, uh, driving us to, to, to look at more regional players to help uh, stability in Afghanistan. And obviously, uh, it, uh, the history of this 10 last year shows that India uh, is one of, uh, uh, of those regional players with a bigger pot potential. 
uh, and we could uh, uh, we hope to be able to cooperate here closely economic interests obviously uh, uh, this is a strong point because uh, although India is still I understand or by a little or almost still the India mains trading and FDI partner the EU uh, nevertheless the great overall of our bilateral trade flows has been uh, steadily declining shrinking in recent times uh, and uh, Indians note with reason that uh, the EU is losing uh, shares in India and uh, not good but India is not gaining so much shares uh, in Europe when compared for example to other in, uh, Asian economy uh, the flows of uh, trade and uh, uh, um, direct investment uh, with China, for example, has grown 24 in the 10 last years, while it has been diminished by two with India. Why? You know, uh, is it that our economies are really not complementary at all? But but they are not compete. They don't compete to each, with each other so much. Uh, for example, with Brazil, there is more competition th theoretically than with India. Uh, if you look at, uh, the, if you listen to business, so why is it? I have not a formal answer to that, but I think this is also something we have to reflect on. And global challenges, um, global challenges, we want to bridge policy gaps with India on uh, a number of global challenges, <coughs> and, we, and uh, I think we have to realize that, as you said, Ambassador, India has its own views, and uh, Europe should not seek necessarily to always uh, get India to uh, acquiesce to European views, this is true. Um, and sometimes we have very good cooperation. For example, at this time, a very good cooperation, which is promising, is to work on the um, International Space Code of Conduct, where India, between the uh, emerging countries, has shown more interest than, than others, and we are very interested by that. And, uh, but, uh, and conversely, uh, Europe should be uh, ready to listen more to India on all these issues. The problem is that sometimes India is not so much caring to be heard by Europeans, because India has a very... Uh, standalone autonomous policy, while Europe has a very engaging policy. And uh, so, you know, um, uh, we would probably listen more to India uh, if India wanted to be listened more by Europeans. Uh, I've taken part, as former spokesman for France, to a number of bilateral summits or meetings uh, with India. And what strikes me is that uh, usually the Indians were listening but had not much to propose or to ask for. Because that's the way they conceive international relations. You know, they are an independent, autonomous, standalone power, and that's all. While uh, the nature of uh, uh, the way the uh, EU envisages the international relations is we have to organize because we are at a moment in the world history where uh, the uh, uh, forces of disorganization, you know, after the Cold War, make uh, you say multipolar world. I don't know if I would accept, if I would uh, speak about multipolar world in front of George, because as you know, here multipolar world in the U.S. carries a negative note. Uh, it is seen as symbol of uh, instability. But let's say in the world of today, uh, we need uh, really to, to to try to uh, better organize world governance. And sometimes uh, uh, we think that uh, India is happy to contribute to world governance by its just existence, <laughs> its mere existence. <laughs> and uh, this makes uh, the dialogue sometimes a bit more difficult. Now, how do we perceive India objectives seen from the EU part, you see? 
uh, we think that uh, India is interesting in seeing uh, marginally EU contributing to soft security objectives in the region. Terrorism, yes, uh, piracy, but also uh, India seeks support from EU and member states to develop its civilian nuclear program. And as French, I can tell you, we are very interested in cooperating on that, as everybody knows. <laughs> but uh, we think also that India is... Uh, uh, hope, believing that EU should facilitate its objectives in multilateral fora, especially with respect to membership of international body and export control regimes, full access to nuclear markets, strengthened position at the international financial institutions, and obviously the permanency to UNEC, but it's just the uh, emerged part of the iceberg. You have many things under it. Vasana, MTCR, Australian Group, etc. And uh, India tells us that they want European industry to contribute more to its economic modernization with more FDA, more technology transfers and increased trade flows and greater access to the European market for its products, but also for its surplus human resources. And we certainly can do uh, better on uh, all these fields, both European and Indian's point of interest. We have gone for uh, concluding an ambitious and balanced FTA uh, I don't know uh, if uh, this will happen soon. Uh, still big difficulties remain, particularly about services. And here also I think we have to manage expectations, you know. Uh, at a moment of huge crisis uh, worldwide, and particularly where Europe is seeking jobs and growth, I have to, to say from a European point of view, it will not be an easy sell. It will not be an easy sell because for good or bad reasons, um, uh, I will not come back to the ArcelorMittal thing, which remains a trauma in uh, the European mind. Uh, but uh, India is seen as a country which could compete on a number of uh, aspects uh, unfairly because of their extremely low wages with European workforce. And that uh, on some aspects, like uh, uh, informatics, electronics, uh, yes, there is a sort of parity, but on many other aspects, there isn't. Uh, there is not a uh, level playing field. Um, and that's why uh, the FTA discussion is very difficult at this stage. And, uh, and for India, obviously, uh, the, the risk for the economy is also big. So, uh, you know, uh, the present actuality is not necessarily so much conducive. It would require a real quality gap in the appreciation we make of the potential of the agreement. And uh, the present economic trends are not necessarily so encouraging. So we have to, to continue working, but we have to manage expectations also related to, to, to NFTAs. Uh, and if we achieve an agreement, it shouldn't, maybe it will not be such a huge one. Now, if I leave the langue de bois a bit more, uh, I would say why is this situation uh, finally not dramatic? Because our relations are good. We consider that we are, we, India and European consider themselves mutually as friends. And this is important. As you said, uh, right, Levin, we have no strategic uh, disagreement. Um, uh, maybe uh, uh, we, ha we can, have, uh, we can uh, disagree on one issue punctually, and uh, it, it happens quite often, but we have no uh, fundamental conflict of interest because we are far enough from each other, and uh, India is a standalone uh, entity, and Europe um, has learned to better, to, has learned to that uh, its influence uh, sh should not, uh, uh, is not today uh, the same than it was uh, 30 years ago. So uh, we don't have fundamental conflicts. But why is it nevertheless unsatisfactory? 
I will tend to say that it's first and foremost, I, I will say that it's first and foremost a product of history. Um, India has always been seen from uh, through European eyes, first of all, as a UK thing. Uh, and uh, it, it, it was uh, discreetly uh, present in what you alluded to, Ambassador. <laughs> uh, and uh, so for the continental Europe, India, oh, it's really the problem of the UK and uh, much more than uh, the problem of Europe as a whole. And as you know, UK is not the center of gravity of Europe. It's a very fundamental partner, indispensable, but when it comes to making global decisions vis-à-vis India, uh, there is not a moving force which is as central as, for example, the Franco-German uh, cooperation regarding Africa. Africa is much nearer and uh, you have... Uh, to, to cooperate with Africa, a driving force, which is France usually, which, which is when it comes to move things at European level, obviously more efficient than UK, because when you are at the core of the integration, you move things better than when you are opposing to this integration. Uh, so here you have uh, one reason. The other reason regarding India now and EU is that India sees Europe through British eyes. India sees Europe through the British press and particularly through the Eurosceptic press. So India has probably an even uh, worse unbalanced and irrealistic view of what EU is than here. And it's, uh, and it's not so little. <laughs> um, if you read the British press, you will see that the Eurozone is supposed to have exploded already two years ago. You will see that the European population should have gone away from this oppressive Brussels bureaucracy. And I will not argue that the Brussels bureaucracy is not oppressive. I will just argue that the level of trust to the EU bureaucracy in Europe is still 30%, while here the level of trust for the US federal government is only 18%. So you see... The presentation is important, and the image, and it's a deeply rooted image, both of India and Europe, and of Europe in India, is not as good as it should be. I was, uh, yesterday evening, before coming, you know, I made a, a very small family inquiry. I asked my three sons and my wife, what India meaning for you? And they are all India. Phil, uh, the godmother uh, of one of my sons, is Indian. Uh, so uh, we are a family who is very India Phil. Uh, but I say, forget about family and individuals. What India as a collection means for you. And what is good from India? What do you want to receive from India? What's your interest in India? There was only one word which came immediately, but the only one, yoga. Yoga is popular. Yoga is good, you know? <laughs> you know? And uh, it's something, I come from the French city of Bordeaux, and when I say Bordeaux, people say, oh, good wine. Okay, it's a passport. <laughs> uh, we need to uh, find out more passports which can improve the image of both entities in the other part, uh, in the other one side. And I think this is fundamental because uh, as long as we shall not be able to do that, uh, we shall either realizing how much we could do together, have high expectation impossible to uh, fulfill, and as a, a counterpart, complain endlessly that, the, that all the fault is on the other side, while as in an old couple, we know that it's usually 50-50, the, the, the responsibilities. Um, if I may conclude briefly, because I want to leave time for question, uh, I would just add one, one or two things. You have described, Ambassador, uh, the view of India towards the EU as supplemental diplomacy. I have to say that 
seen from a European point of view, it is a bit depreciative. Because supplemental, you know, in military terms, it means this uh, supplementary troops which are of no value and that you can sacrifice at first glance. While I think this doesn't correspond honestly to the truth, this is an example of a misperception uh, of uh, uh, European in India. Uh, if I had to describe that, I would use the term synergetic diplomacy. We, we try to build synergy and to be uh, not to duplicate. The EU should not duplicate what member states do. Member states should not duplicate. But synergetic in the sense that in the context of a global crisis, you know, more and more small member states are relying on the EU to, 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 to fulfill their most essential duties. And uh, for what is uh, the hard power, uh, you know, the EU is working in more and more synergy with, with member states. Uh, and here the EU could look at, what, uh, at uh, what is the look from the US on Europe. Uh, because it could, uh, as, uh, if uh, India is interested by uh, the US, it could maybe uh, learn a bit or study a bit how the US is seeing Europe. And what strikes me since one or two years after the Lisbon Treaty is that um, we have forgotten about theology. You know, what's the importance that it's Ashton, Van Rompuy, Barroso, uh, Sarkozy or Merkel who do the thing? The importance is, is the thing done or not? And when you talk about hard power, you know, we prefer to use the word European. Lakes takes the example of Libya extraordinary situation where Europeans are for the first time taken the lead uh, and uh, led an operation with uh, NATO means that they have led and not the US. But if you take the theological approach, you would say, oh, but it's not the EU, it's NATO and the, uh, and the US and uh, France and Great Britain. No. Here, the, when you discuss with your strategies, they will give you a single answer. All that doesn't count. The only thing we count, Europeans were in the lead. And I think you have, we have increasingly to make the case to India that the old categories of EU, Commission, Council, uh, member states are outdated. The crisis doesn't allow for this luxury anymore. We are a community with synergetic means. Member states should be more respected by the EU. Um, uh, very between you and me, I find, uh, because of my own profile, which is serving for member states for all my career and arriving at the EU since one year, I did find that the EU didn't look at member states in the appropriate way. The EU did consider it as something independent from member states. This is absurd, and I think the first innovation of the Lisbon Treaty is we are a synergy, we are different forms of the same reality. We have not three sets of citizens. Citizen paint in commission, citizen paint in council, and citizen paint national. We have not three sets of troops. We have not three sets of nuclear weapons. Uh, they are all Europeans, and uh, you act on each of them in a different way at a different level. Uh, but uh, if uh, India could see Europe as a whole, I think it would have a more realistic approach of what India is. And if uh, Europe could see India... Um, outside from British eyes as, uh, and could see uh, the huge possibilities that India offer, as long as you respect it. It would see that it's not normal, that our relations are so quickly growing with China and, and, and that India is not at the pace. And I'm sure uh, there are things which we should do. But more mutual respect, uh, and I will join what you said, Ambassador, more mutual respect, sovereignty and equals. No acrimonious debate about the opportunities we missed because we have uh, had 
so high expectations, which were not expectations between equals. When you have too high expectations, it means that you don't look at the other as an equal. We should have realistic expectations and make the best of it. Thank you. Thank you, um, I'm going to now uh, invite comments and questions uh, from all of you. I, I think Bernd set a, a very interesting example, which is that when you tell it like it is, as the ambassador said, it stimulates others to speak uh, frankly. And so to have um, two gentlemen with such distinguished diplomatic careers speak so candidly in, in, in this way, uh, I think is, is very helpful and very welcome. And, but I think partly it's a responding to something that was so candid and direct. So I, I appreciate that. And so I would invite you to also be candid and direct and say your, uh, you know, what's on your minds or uh, ask questions of, of these gentlemen. Please uh, introduce yourselves, if, uh, if you will. Thanks. Anyone? Yes, sir. Uh, hi, um, my name is uh, Arjun Kosa, and um, I wanted to ask, uh, in the past, uh, India's relationship with uh, global powers has been defined in no small part by military cooperation with the US, with the Soviet Union, and even with the UK. And I was wondering if that was, if that plays a role in the discrepancy between, which I think all of you mentioned, um, the India-EU India relationship and the India-US relationship, and if that was considered when um, writing this document. Um, because that's not yeah. as much a part of that, you know, at least to me, uh, in the uh, India-EU relationship. I can maybe... Yeah, this is, I mean, this comes to the whole issue of hard power, uh, which you mentioned, and uh, I think... Uh, some of the European powers have had to pass as, as not so much in sort of joint exercises, or so, but as providers of military hardware. I mean, not just the UK and France, but uh, Germany also is always, uh, when I was there, uh, very happy, you know, as a provider of such hardware. And, and um, as, as the U.S., I mean, the difference in the U.S.-India relationship is that uh, as that got closer, one of the important parts are these joint military exercises who have been going on now for several years at, at quite some level. And has it with, with, and India has some of that, but also with other countries. And France has taken part in uh, bilateral ex military exercises. I think so as the U.K. later on, too. But this is all, that's all relatively new. I mean, the EU has in Europe um, developed some degree of military cooperation. Um, that's sort of a whole science of its own because uh, a unit, a national unit that is EU assigned cannot be NATO assigned at the same time. I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into that, but that hasn't really <coughs> played a role yet in the relation with India. But, and that's why I mentioned that, there is a mission, a military EU mission, which I mentioned, that's the one in, in the Indian Ocean, the Atalanta mission, the anti-piracy mission. And, and there have been, for the last year or so, very, actually, a lot of contacts between the two sides. Indian is an independent supplier, um, deployer, sorry, in, in, the, uh, in this anti-piracy um, effort in, and, and how they could coordinate more closely, do something together. And, and that is... Uh, 
at least for the, I can say for the EU, that is seen as one of the most promising aspects in the political side of relationship. Um, I mean, he's right. But what I wanted to mention is that it's a question of what comes first. With Russia or the former Soviet Union, it was actually the military relationship that came first. Now, when we talk of a military relationship, we have to make a distinction between defense procurement and defense you know, policy operation. coordination or operation or exercises, two separate things. In fact, in the case of the India-US relationship, it's only now in the last few years that actually defense procurement has been become a big deal. Mm -hmm. And it started actually with uh, joint exercises and this kind of a thing, which has led to defense procurement. Whereas in the case of Russia, actually it was straight away in 1971 when we were not getting anything from anywhere, that we started with the whole defense. So it, or for, take Israel, for example, the reason why the relationship with Israel is booming in just 20 years' time is because we have been able to get a whole lot of defense technology from Israel, which was actually not available to us because we were still under various kind of sanctions. So uh, it's really difficult to say which comes first. But historically, this is how it has come. Now, with the EU itself, because the EU's own military uh, potential in terms of, I mean, during Solana's time, they decided to have EU battalions and, you know, rapid action force. And so it is, it is still a work in progress. So that is why it is difficult to, and I think this uh, business of counter-piracy uh, piracy cooperation, probably the first uh, important tangible thing that might come out uh, of this. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is Jerry Fowler from the Open Society Foundations. Uh, thank you for these presentations. It's very thought-provoking. I wanted to... Uh, uh, I guess ask a, a follow-up to something you said, Ambassador Abiyankar, uh, Abiyankar, and uh, and then maybe get a response from the other two gentlemen. But I understood you to say that uh, one distinction between the India-EU relationship and the India-US relationship is that uh, discussions with the EU start with how the EU wants India to be different than it is. And so the follow-up question is, is, is that, if I understood correctly, is that beginning of conversations with the EU uh, different than the conversations that India has with individual, with the major members of the EU? Um, and if so, is it kind of a function of the way the, the, the EU functions? And then I would like to hear the response of, of the other two on, on that. Uh, it is so that uh, what happens is that uh, as far as the member states are concerned, I mean, take any of them, um, Germany, France, there's such a huge backlog of relationship that uh, it's hardly ever that the kind of issues that the EU raises with us get raised by these countries. So the conversation starts on a completely different basis. Whereas with the EU, actually, the conversation starts with these issues, huh. which have anyway not been taken up by anyone, any of the member states individually. But 
if you look at the totality, then of course, if you say that Europe is one, then there is a good bonus that the member state gets by having the EU raise issues which they have not raised. So the conversation does become different because well, let's take a simple case of death penalty. Now we still have death penalty in India. <coughs> Um, this is a constant recurring theme about us removing the death penalty and uh, or take child labor. I mean, there are a whole lot of issues like that where the whole thing starts on a premise that India should change in the eyes. Uh, I mean, look at the thing through European eyes and sometimes it's very difficult to do that. And uh, therefore, there's hardly any uh, outcome that can come from this. As, as things stands today. So, that's, so there is a certain uh, different way in which the conversation proceeds. That, that's true. Yeah. Uh, I very much concur with, with what uh, the ambassador said, and it's normal. Uh, we are here in, uh, speaking about a diplomacy of European wine, which is multi-layered. Member states are our constituency. We are acting on their behalf, and it's normal, it's the same in every democracy, you know, when you have, uh, just think here, uh, would you imagine that uh, uh, the uh, undersecretary for, uh, from DHS would go to Arizona and announce a subvention? No, it will be the senator of Arizona who will go to announce a subvention. Uh, when we go to India, uh, the member states want uh, to, to be able, because they respond directly to their constituents, to be able to show results. And so they are very happy that we do the, the, the part which is the most ingrat, the most uh, unrewarding uh, of uh, the global diplomacy that Europe develops to India. Uh, it's the same here in the U.S. In the U.S., for example, we are in charge of a European trading scheme because nobody in Europe wants to fight with Congress about European trading scheme. So it's, uh, member states are extremely happy that we deal with European trading scheme. Now, uh, when it comes to deal with some more rewarding issues, I will not name them, then member states said, oh, um, we are happy with you not taking, not being too much in interest. We will do the work. Don't worry. Don't worry. So, so you know, and that's normal. We are a structure in progress, and particularly the European External Action Service and the EU has to prove its utilities to the European populations. And the best way of proving that we are useful is to prove that we are here to make the dirty job. So uh, this is normal, I would say. Uh, this is uh, the logic which is uh, classic. Uh, the mistake would be to see us on two completely world apart. On one hand, the member states, on the other, the EU, because then you have uh, uh, not uh, the complete picture. If you want to have a complete picture of what Europeans do, you have to see what member states do and what we do as a multi-layered but globally consistent diplomacy. Uh, but uh, I concur with what you said about your analysis. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, whether you want to call it a uh, Supplemental or synergetic diplomacy, the matter is the same. And it's, I think it's important that this is nothing that is particular to India. It's the way the EU, EU operates. If you, know, if you represent a member state, especially a bigger one, you have your core interest, which you push. And you are willing to sacrifice some not so pleasant other things on your, on, on your talking points in order to get the big one through. But if the EU comes together and defines their policy, all the member st states, representatives sit together and all the issues get accumulated, 
and uh, they have to represent most of that. So they get stuck with the more difficult and often the more unpleasant issues. But if I may add one word, I think, as I said, we are in a work in progress, and which strikes me also is that this uh, differences of behaviors between member states and the EU is, will historically go shrinking progressively and diminishing because we are making progress uh, on each and every issue I can tell you uh, so that uh, our positions are every year, every six months I would say more coordinated and more consistent. Uh, still we see on a number of key issues such as Libya uh, various positions expressed by member states. Uh, but, nevertheless, uh, on a daily basis, I talk on a personal experience now, uh, the progress of coordination has been really huge in the three last years. And uh, I think the, it will be less and less the case that member states can uh, make points completely unrelated to ours and that we can make points more related, uh, uh, unrelated to ours. It will, the synergy which was unsaid and not very visible, will become more and more visible uh, 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 as far as we are going to develop our common uh, reactions. And for a very simple reason, which is the external pressure. It's not that the EU today is so much able to build it from inside, but as for the economic crisis, where we are developing rapidly tools to deal with the economic crisis and to the shortcomings of the euro governance under the pressure uh, of, of the markets. In the foreign policy also, the requirement, uh, if the EU and its member states wants to be heard, the synergy has to be bigger. Because even the bigger of member states, like Germany, like France, like UK, are less and less able to shape the international agenda. Ten years ago, I was uh, in other functions. I thought that France still has the capability to, 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 to shape partly some elements of the uh, uh, global agenda. Today, France can do it only through the EU, and the same for Germany, the same for UK. So, you know, uh, uh, it is not very visible, but uh, the way uh, we work together, member states, uh, we are more and more integrated, uh, and we have more and more common concepts, more and more common views. Uh, we have a common, a completely political common approach on Mali. Who would have thought that possible uh, only five years ago? Five years ago, apart from France, nobody would have even cared discussing Mali. Thank you. Good questions. We have time for one, one more. Yes, ma'am. Um, my name is Fatih Baju, and I'm sorry, I did not really read your article. Uh, Mr. Byrne, but my question is directly for Mr. Francois. Uh, Ambassador Abiancar said uh, that 59% of the hotel owners are Indian in the United States, and one of six doctors are, is Indian in the United States. Why is that? Because I have been in France, and it's true, I have seen it. There are less Indian in France, and why is that? <laughs> I'm sorry. My first answer is that we have a number of good candidates in France, and you know we have already too many doctors, they say, in France for, uh, for certain specialties. And where, where we don't have enough, uh, we have a lot of uh, new doctors coming from Bulgaria, Romania, and we, from within the European community. While uh, uh, the UK, 
because of its special agreements with India, can import Indian doctors. The rest of the EU prefers to take them in Europe themselves. So it's uh, really uh, it really makes a difference. Uh, accessorily, uh, an element of the answer could be uh, when you look at, for example, uh, UNESCO or WHO stats uh, that. Uh, um, the level of formation, you know, uh, of people arriving at the entry of, uh, uh, of uh, medicine universities um, is probably a, a bit better in continental Europe than in the UK and in the US. Uh, the US is uh, uh, without any uh, uh, competition first in the world for lawyers. Uh, but uh, the um, uh, international stats show that there is a deficit of good mathematicians and uh, scientists in the US and maybe in UK. And uh, you, India is renowned for producing uh, outstanding uh, mathematicians and scientists. So uh, there is here some kind of vast communicant, you know, uh, too much here, too less here, it communicates. While France is known and Europe is known for having, uh, particularly France and Germany, for having still, uh, at least France, I don't know Germany, now they begin to import Spanish scientists, I saw. <laughs> but France, we, uh, we, are, we, are, we are renowned for our scientific knowledge, you know, we are, compared to the population, the nation with the highest Nobel Prize in science, uh, we, we still are, uh, I think, without need to, to resort to the exterior. Thank you. There's one um, additional point I would make, which uh, Ambassador Rivazo actually mentioned, Rivazo, that uh, it's not so much about doctors, but it's about professionals. And... Uh, there is a problem of a level playing field in a number of professions where there is a felt need in the EU. But when professionals go there, there are certain uh, disabilities which need to be removed so that they can compete. Uh, of course, in the information technology area, it's there. Also, in terms of scientific researchers and so on, at least when I was in Brussels, uh, there was a, a, a huge figure of, I don't know, <coughs> 100,000 of uh, scientific researchers that were required in the EU if it had to keep up to the uh, you know, rate of research and development in science which say the US has achieved and so on, if it has to keep up its competitiveness, where they're going to come from? So for wherever they come from, and many could come from India, it's a question of finding the ways to do it. This really relates to the terms of entry to the terms on which they stay and the terms on which they leave. So it has something to do with social security, provident, uh, improvidence and so on, where uh, you know these things need to be improved. So that, that's really the issue. Thank you. thank you. I want to thank Bernd for writing this paper, which uh, I think is very stimulating uh, in, 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 in raising very important questions. And I want to thank uh, Ambassador Abdiankar and Ambassador Rivaso uh, for the comments from both perspectives. I, I think this is a rich and fascinating topic. It's not going to go away. Uh, so I appreciate that, and I appreciate your, uh, your coming. Thank you very much.